Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2, and we'll be referring to the portion of the text that Dave read for us a few moments ago. If you're using the Pew Bible today, you'll find today's Scripture text on page 647. 647 of your Pew Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. We're continuing this morning in our study of a a series of messages that we began last week in this Old Testament book, and we are considering together the ramifications and the conclusions of a life that is lived apart from God, that is not centered in God, a godless life, if you will. And we're looking at this through the eyes of the teacher, the preacher, Quohelet in the Hebrew, who many consider to be Solomon, the king of Israel, the son of David. Before we begin our study of the the text before us today, I want to start by asking some very simple questions. If truth be told, the questions are simple, but perchance the the answers may be a bit difficult. And I'd prefer this morning that you just answer these questions that I'm posing in your own heart rather than speaking verbally an answer. Just answer in your own heart. Here are the questions. Are you happy? Are you really happy? And if you're not happy today, the second question, what is it then that will make you happy? What will it take for you finally to come to a state of happiness? The third question, when do you think you finally will be happy? When will you be happy? Now, I venture guess that that everyone in this room has something or someone that we anticipated in times past, we anticipated that that individual, that thing would make us happy. We assumed that once we achieved that certain something, once we experienced, once we accomplished that goal, once we acquired that one thing that we thought would make us happy, that when that was done, that we would be satisfied, content, and ultimately happy. So fill in the blank. I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when. And my follow-up question then is this. Do you really think, in your heart of hearts, that when you fill in that blank with whatever it is that you think will make you satisfied, content, and happy personally, do you really think that you will be happy? Do you really think that that will happen? And I'm sure that if some of you would look back over the course of your life, 5, 10, 15, perhaps for some of you 20 years, At some point in your journey, 
you thought to yourself, if I could only have that, if I could only do that, if I could only go there, if I could only be experience that, then I'll be happy and I'll be satisfied. I won't need anything more. That's all I'll need to make me happy. And so many of us go through life laboring under that assumption, with that end in mind. But in the process, we undoubtedly have discovered that these things, these achievements, these attainments that we thought would make us happy and content and satisfied, have not done so. They have, they've lost their power. We are still not happy. So what do we do? Many of us choose then to chuck the old list of things that we thought would make us happy, and we create a whole new list. We refine the list. We make it more specific. So we add things to our list of things that will make us happy. We add to our list things like travel. We assume that if we are able to afford going to a foreign land where they can't stand Americans where the food is loaded with fat and cholesterol, and we see the Eiffel Tower, which is virtually nothing more than just a big pointy metal thing, that we'll be happy if we can be globe trekkers. And so we go through life like a one-armed paper hanger. We keep putting the paper up. But when we go to smooth out and roll out the seams, we discover that the other rolls of paper that we thought were going to make us happy are falling down all around us. Peter Kreeft says that this kind of living is like a wild goose chase without a goose. We keep trying to make ourselves happy and satisfied by reorganizing the external details of our lives. And so we work harder to make more money. We work out in the gym so we don't have to butter our hips to get through the front door. We <laughs> this is why we buy so much butter in the Crocker household. Me, not my wife, me. We pursue more sex, more friends, more stuff. All the while, not realizing that our satisfaction, our joy, or our pleasure has much more to do with the reorganization of things internally in the heart than it has to do with the reorganization of things externally in our outward lives. What is the good life? What makes man happy? That is the philosophical and ethical question that Quahelet, the teacher, the preacher, Solomon, is asking in this book. Last week we talked about this overarching philosophical question that Solomon was asking, what is the meaning, the purpose of life? And we discovered early on in chapter 1 that Solomon is saying that as far as life is concerned here, under the sun, on this horizontal plane, 
that a life apart from God is vain, is meaningless, is empty, is vaporous. In the Hebrew is hevel. In the English it is. Do you remember what the word is? You remembered something. Oh, it's good. It's good. And we noticed last time that a life that is lived without a practical faith in God, a life that ignores God's claim on our own life, is like running in circles, is nothing more than life on a treadmill. Now this week, as we continue in our study, we're going to see that the teacher, Quohelet, is going to let us look in on his next great experiment. And he does us the favor of trying out the things that I think most of us would try out if we had the opportunity, that we think these things would bring us the greatest pleasure and happiness and the good life. And in chapter 2, Solomon, Quohelet, the teacher, becomes an experiential, experiential hedonist. And he pursues every pleasure that the world has to offer. And interestingly, it seems as you read his experiment that he does it with an unparalleled gusto. And then he does us the favor of reporting, subsequently reporting his findings to us. His search is summed up, I think, in the song that you two wrote for Johnny Cash. I went out there in search of an experience to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. This is the core, the basis of Solomon's hedonistic experiment. He decides he's going to try everything. No holds barred. And he's going to see if it'll bring him happiness. So let's jump in at verse 1 and, and follow his stream of thought. Verse 1. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Solomon starts out by telling us in verse 1 that he set himself to this pursuit of, of chasing pleasure. In other words, uh, he said to himself, let the good times roll. Let me ask you this morning, and you can answer this one. How many of you like pleasure? Raise your hand. Do you like pleasure? Yeah. There's a few masochists in the audience. That, but largely, most of us prefer pleasure over pain. We like a comfortable bed. We like shoes that are broken in. We like pants that you don't have to unbutton when you sit down. Or at least I do. Some of you like to get massages. Others of you, like me, like to go get your hair cut so that you can have the, the stylist wash your hair and massage your scalp. That's my favorite part. In fact, I, I think that they should set up a shop where all you do is come and they wash your hair for 30 minutes and let that warm water just wash over your scalp and hair. Dry it off and send you. I, I'd buy an annual membership to that kind of place. I love that. 
It brings me such pleasure. We are designed to enjoy pleasurable things. We like a pleasant sunrise or sunset, a pleasant meal. We prefer pleasure over pain. But I'd also bet that some of you were told by well-meaning parents or friends or youth leaders or pastors that if it felt good, you probably should repent because it's probably sin. Such is not true. God has hardwired us for pleasure. Solomon tells us that he... He's making a good hard pass at pleasure. He decides to go after it with tremendous zeal. And he's decided to to explore it all. I'll be happy when. Verse 2. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? Solomon decides that in his first part of this experiment that he's He's going to try out comedy and laughter. He's going to laugh his way through life. Send in the clowns. Book the comedians. Let's hear those funny one-liners. But again, as he pursues this pleasure in comedic entertainment, his search comes up zilch. And he concludes it's just madness. Absolutely foolish. What does it accomplish? No lasting satisfaction there. Now, don't get me wrong. I love to laugh. I enjoy a good, hearty belly laugh as much as anyone else. I enjoyed Married Life Live so much last night. We had fun together. And it was a good evening. I love laughter and good humor. I would love to have Steve Martin or Jerry Seinfeld or Bill Cosby or Adam Sandler or Will Ferrell as my next-door neighbor so that when I get down in the mully grubs that I could just go next door and they could cheer me up with a good story. Wouldn't it be great if we had the, the financial means and the power to have guys like that at our disposal who would make us laugh all the time? Can you imagine? Can you imagine how great that would be? But Solomon's experience tells him, I had all of that. I had the best that the world had to offer. And I conclude that it's all madness. It's foolishness. It's trivial. And it brings no satisfaction. So, okay, maybe comedy has its limitations. But what about getting hammered and partying all night? Perhaps the satisfaction that that I'm searching for, the thing that makes me happy, can be found in a bottle. How about drinking myself silly like a fraternity brother on spring break? That surely would make me happy. I'll be happy when. Solomon says in verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. I was able to keep my mind in all this. My mind still was giving me wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. 
In other words, Solomon is saying, if I I could just in this short existence here in life under the sun, if I could just enjoy myself with more alcohol, then I'd be happy. So he gives it a go. Not as a seedy-looking gutter drunk who stumbles through the back door of the rescue mission, but as a, a sophisticated connoisseur of liquid delight. And in pursuing this, Solomon finds that it is empty. There's nothing more in the bottle than in Jimmy Buffett's words, a wasting away in Margaritaville. I'll be happy when. Let's try project. I have some tasks I want to do. I undertook great projects, Solomon says. I built houses, plural. I built houses for myself and I planted vineyards. I'll be happy, we say to ourselves. I'll I'll finally be happy when I, I buy my first home. For some of you, uh, what will bring you happiness is is moving out of your parents' house. Let me let you in on a little secret. It'll make your parents happy too. (laughs) You're 30 years old. You do one class per semester for the last 10 years and you're still living at home. And, And you're thinking... Boy, if I could just move out of the house and into my own place, then, 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 then I'd really be happy. And so you move to an apartment and you find out you can't paint the walls whatever color you want and you can't buy upgraded nicer appliances or have your own washer or dryer or your own trash compactor or your own double-sided fridge with the ice and water dispenser. So you think to yourself, well then, it's time for me I'll buy my own home. When I buy my own home and I can put my own things in it and do with it whatever I want, then, then I will finally be happy. So you move into the home of your dreams and then you just find out about things like association dues and that the, the subdivision has some rules of, about the, the exterior way you can color your home. It has to be a certain style of brick or a certain color of siding. You find find out now that you have all of your appliances that you have to pay for every single thing that breaks down on those appliances and not the landlord or your parents. For some of you, you think, I'll be happy when I can get a bigger house in a nicer neighborhood without my neighbors blaring their tasteless music at 3 a.m. and raring up and down the street in their souped-up 69 Mustang, then, then I'll really be happy. Solomon says, don't bother looking there. I've tried that. I had 13 houses built for me. 13 houses. A hundred thousand workers, carpenters, masons, decorators. A hundred thousand, it is estimated, a hundred thousand workers 
worked on Solomon's houses. Imagine what you could build with the unlimited resources that were Solomon's with 100,000 plus workers. And wouldn't it be great to have resources so that you could have more than one home? You could have a home in the city and a home in the country and a home at the beach and a home in the mountains. A home in Florida in the winter and a home in the Canadian Rockies for the summertime. A place to fish and enjoy and recreate. Just think about it. Think about a house built with a hundred thousand workers. Can you imagine that house being featured in the real estate showcase in the Saturday paper? One of Solomon's houses. A hundred thousand workers. Real estate agent, Marsha Marsh Realty. (laughs) It'll bring you pleasure! No, it won't. It's empty. It's futile. It's Hevel. It's How about gardens and parks? Solomon says, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made reservoirs to water the groves of flourishing trees. I'll be happy when I can walk through my own private place. When I can have some expansive acreage that I can call on my, call my own and sit in my own private garden and, and have koi in the huge pond out back. Several years ago, Kathy and I toured Great Britain, and one of the lovely spots that we visited on our tour was Blenheim Palace. It was a posh and magnificent estate of the 11th Duke of Marlborough, and also happens to be the birthplace of Sir Winston Churchill. It was absolutely magnificent. I can't even find words in human vocabulary to describe its, its beauty. But not only was the building, the palace itself, amazing, but the grounds were absolutely extraordinary, beyond belief. The smells, the colors, the different types of flowers and plants, the ponds, the fountains, the rolling lawns, the century-old trees. It was absolutely breathtaking. And as Kathy and I sat there on a garden bench just drinking it all in uh, and looking at this grand estate, I thought to myself, wow. Wouldn't it be great if this was my backyard? Not. You'd have to mow it and edge it and mulch it and water it, fertilize it. So Solomon decides that what he needs is is not houses and lands, but what he needs are some people to fill up these places that he's built. So he fills the places with slaves and He begins collecting precious gems and becomes a connoisseur of silver and gold. How does he put it? He has all the treasures of princes and provinces. That didn't satisfy, so he hired singers, both male and female. He wrote his own music. Just imagine how much pleasure you'd get from having one of your own compositions sung by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in your living room didn't satisfy. He had a harem of 300 concubines, women with dark hair and blonde hair, light skin, dark skin. 
This in addition to 700 wives, 1,000 women. Honestly. Either it's every man's dream or it's every man's nightmare. Which, which is it? He had it all. Wine, women, and song. Yet he still, he still failed to find inner peace. Erotic pleasure left him feeling empty. He was bored. He was frustrated. And he just found it as yet another one of those life-under-the-sun experiences. You'd think you'd be happy if you had a debit card that had no limitations to it. That you never had to balance your account because it didn't matter, because there was always enough money there. You could buy whatever you wanted when you wanted it. Verse 10, Solomon says, I denied myself nothing. My eyes desired. I refused. My heart, no pleasure. I never said no to myself. My heart took delight in all my work. And the delight that I took was the reward that I felt. In other words, I can do whatever my eyes and heart wants to do. I can come up with an endless list of new things that I think will bring me pleasure. I can put it all over there in the drawer. Gambling, sports, intellectual pursuit, oil painting, learning to play an instrument, learning to, to sword fight, whatever. It's your choice. But here's the toughest part of his message. Verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was Havel, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. There's that phrase again. It keeps popping up 29 times in this book. A chasing after the wind. Solomon had arranged all of the external uh, aspects of his world that would afford him maximum pleasure to the hilt. But in this hedonistic experiment, he never, never, never got to a point where he experienced enduring happiness and satisfaction. Why? Because in his internal condition had not been reoriented. He remained sinful. Friends, may I remind you of something? The good life, the high life, may be pleasurable for a season. It might be a wild ride. But I want to remind you, too, that if you're counting on the world's pleasures to bring you lasting satisfaction and peace, you will be, you will be disappointed. Because those highs of life will eventually fade, and the paths that you may be going on may not answer, will not answer, the deepest longings of your soul. I tell you today that they are dead-end streets. And if you are today building your life on these things apart from God, you will, at the end of these roads, you will, I promise you, you will ultimately end up bloodied, beaten, broken, and sad. I think I can safely say that I am now an older man. And I have been down some of those dead-end roads. And in my 30 years of ministry, I have walked alongside of people who've been down some of the roads that I've not been down. As they journeyed down other pleasurable roads, 
And I can tell you, as a witness to my own experience, and as a witness to the experience of others, that when you are on those roads in a life lived apart from God, the end of those roads is disaster and destruction. So I urge you in the name of Jesus to think long and hard about the, the promise that the world is making you as it makes its pledge of pleasure to you. You see, the world's promise for pleasure contains within it an insidious lie. What is the lie of pleasure? The lie is this, that earthly pleasure can provide you with true satisfaction. All you need to do is give it a chance. That's what every commercial marketing venture is telling you. That's what every commercial during the Super Bowl was trying to get across. Just give it a chance. This will bring you happiness. Just do X. Just buy Y. Just go Z. It will give you satisfaction and pleasure. And when that pleasure seems to fail to satisfy, the world says, no, no, you you didn't understand. You didn't get it quite right. If you only get the right thing, you'll be satisfied. You just haven't found the right thing yet. It's, it's the next thing. It's the next one that will bring you pleasure. And so you go on your hunt, your search, from place to place to place to find the next thing, to find the next person, to find the next lover, because in the next thing, you will be satisfied. You won't be satisfied. Because you don't have enough of what you want. You just need more to be satisfied. More will do it. Just add more. Your buddy over there has more than you do, so if you get as much as he or she has, then you'll be happy. If you had more, you'd be happy too. But beware. As you are pursuing these worldly pleasures, along with that pleasure comes something that you thought would never happen. I didn't realize that in the process of pursuing these things that it would cost me my family, my marriage, my children. I didn't realize that my pursuit of pleasure would cost me my church, my job, my community. Dear friends, hear me. A life that is filled with trivial pursuits will leave you feeling empty. Because you're trying to fill yourself up with nothing. If you're pursuing an affair, an extramarital affair, it's not going to fill you up. You're going to get emptier and emptier. The only solid joys, the only lasting treasures that may be discovered in this journey of life are those joys and treasures that are found in a personal faith in the living God who said by the means of this little book tucked away in the Old Testament, be careful, don't go there, I've been there. Instead, trust my Son whose name is Jesus Christ. Only God can give meaning to the universe. 
Young people, if you're getting drunk or high, there must be something missing inside of you that you're trying to fill up. And the beer you're drinking or the pot you're smoking is not going to do it. So I urge you to think hard about what the world is promising in its pledge of pleasure. Because the only pleasure that can ultimately satisfy the longings in your restless heart is pleasure in God. So what is the Christian response to this? What is the Bible's solution to the emptiness of life of pleasure-seeking? It is simply this. For the Christian, we are to take our pleasure in God. We are to enjoy God. The only pleasure that can ultimately fulfill us is pleasure in God. And the problem with the pursuit of pleasure is not that pleasure in itself is wrong, though there are some pleasures that are wrong. The fundamental problem in seeking pleasure as a substitute for God is that we're seeking ultimate pleasure in the wrong way. And so the Christian solution, the Bible's solution to outright hedonism and the pursuit of pleasure in the things of this world is not, listen, it is not to renounce pleasure, but instead is to seek pleasure in God. Hear that loud and clear. The world thinks that the Christian agenda is to make you and me as miserable as possible. And they look and they say, they hear us say things like, die to yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, die daily, consecrate yourself, give yourself away to God, climb up on the altar and be a living sacrifice. And the world says, doesn't that sound like fun? But understand that Jesus says two things. When you die to yourself, you find new life in me. God is not a spoil sport. He's not out to take away pleasure. But in fact, God is in the business of giving you and me pleasure. The message of the Bible is this, that those who die to self find pleasures forevermore, pleasures that are deeper, more satisfying, more lasting, more glorious than the pleasures that this world can ever, ever offer. I think of the words of John Newton, the, the one who wrote our beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. In another one of his hymns, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Newton writes, Fading, fading is the worldling's pleasures, all its boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. We're Zion's children. We're the only ones that know this, this lasting, deep, sweet pleasure that comes from God. True pleasure is only found in God. And God is only found when we die to self, give ourselves away, and live to Him in faith. And so the Christian's response to the pleasure seeker is, your problem is not that you want too much. Your problem is that you're satisfied with too little. You're willing to take trinkets when God is willing to offer you mounds of gold. 
Our problem is not that we are hedonists, but rather that we are too easily pleased. And rather than getting pure pleasure from God's right hand, we settle for the cheap imitations and substitutes that will never satisfy. Blaise Pascal was absolutely right when he said, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. And Del Banco, a sociologist from Colombia, when he writes, the most striking feature of contemporary culture is the, I love this phrase, unslaked craving for transcendence. It's true of all of us. We all want to be happy. We all want to serve something that's bigger than ourselves. We've been purposely designed by God to pursue happiness and crave for transcendence. You and I were made to be the happiest beings in the entire universe. But I'm here to tell you today, based on Solomon's hedonistic experiment, that you will never find that happiness that you're seeking when you're seeking pleasure for yourself. No, no, no. You will only find your pleasure when you learn to glorify God and as the Westminster Catechism says, and enjoy Him forever. Then you will find peace. Then you will find joy. Then you will find satisfaction. I conclude with a beautiful little paragraph from a book called Daily Strength for Daily Needs. It's a devotional book that was written about a hundred years ago. It is out of print. And the entry for January 19th was written by a poor old Methodist lady in the 18th century. Her name is unknown to us. And this is what she wrote. I do not know when I have had happier times in my soul than when I have been sitting at work with nothing before me but a candle and a white cloth and hearing no sound but that of my own breath with God, I love this phrase, with God in my soul and heaven in my eye, I rejoice in being exactly what I am, a creature capable of loving God and who, as long as God lives, must be happy. I get up and I look for a while out the window and gaze at the moon and stars, the work of an almighty hand. I think of the grandeur of the universe and then sit down and I think to myself, I must be one of the happiest persons in life. She discovered the secret. Pleasure is not found in trivial pursuits. Real satisfaction is a life lived in God, for God, and for His pleasure.